remember the first time you got scared and liked it? Were you 10? Something about a really good, scary story gets our adrenaline going in just the right way, and it can be positively narcotic. The mood has to be just right. It should be at the end of a particularly delightful day. The sun will have just set, and you feel blissfully exhausted. Things have wound down, and you're left with a few good friends in a dark but comfortable place. Perhaps on your back porch, surrounded by the glow of citronella candles. Perhaps in a bedroom, sitting in a circle of blanketed friends, all holding flashlights. Perhaps around a nice, roaring campfire. It will start as a conversation, rehashing the day, pouring over some idle gossip. Then maybe someone has had a recent scare or heard a particularly frightening event that they decide to share. It's a slow burn, this deliciously spooky kind of night. One by one, you all pour your stories out into the rapidly cooling night air, and they lay barely glimmering over your head like fireflies. But they're just stories, right? We're all safe in our little circle. Even though, 20 years ago, in this very place, a circle of friends gathered around a campfire. After having a few too many beverages, they decided to go for a swim. The next morning, only one of them remained. The police found them shivering, naked on the shore, smeared with blood. The survivor never spoke again. But now, on nights just like this one, where the moon is particularly bright, you can just see a quintet of misty figures run screaming from the lake, just before a hulking, shadowy figure appears in the tree line, driving all but one back into the water. Some people say the figure is still in these woods, waiting for another innocent victim to take a midnight swim. You'd have to be crazy to get in that water, right? Or are you brave enough to try? Go ahead. I dare you. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Welcome back. We did it. We, we did, did a whole three-parter. Ooh. No. We're I'm done now. Tired. I, we need a break. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. Thank oh, you for a good time. <laughs> it was great. Bye. <laughs> Can you imagine that was our, like, week? Yeah. This was it. <laughs> we, we just wanted to check in with you. Yeah. So for a little over a year now, Leslie and I have been doing live online events that we call Campfire Stories. They started as a way to connect with everyone on a weekly basis during a terrifying pandemic. We just kind of thought people need things to do and they need ways to connect and they need to be occupied. So we started telling stories. We only anticipated doing them for a few months, though, but then the pandemic just never ended. Yeah. It just <laughs> went on forever. 
<laughs> and we like talking to all of you guys. So as it turns out, we now have amassed quite a few wonderful stories that have never made their way onto the main feed. So we decided that we should fix that. And every few months, we'll bring you guys an episode of Just Campfire Greatest Hits. So tonight is our first one, and I'm super excited. Me too. Yeah, they're fun to revisit. And when I get excited, my face makes little wrinkles at the corner of my eyes. I'm looking at them right now. It's awful. And my forehead does that unflattering thing that I think, unfortunately, comes to all of us with age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And being as we just booked our first live show. <gasps> Yikes. What? Stay tuned for more on that. I would really like to take care of those pesky wrinkles and look my best by the time summer rolls around. Wouldn't you, Leslie? I sure would. See? We're all feeling the same way. And nothing gets the skin back to its youthful elasticity like a good dose of validation. validation. Thankfully, you can all help with that. <gasps> so good, right? How? How? Tell me. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Just head on over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment and it makes a world of difference. So if you want to see us in a city near you, review, review, review. Like that rhyme? It's a good one, right? (laughs) (laughs) And if you want even more We Would Be Dead, then you should check out our Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, patrons get an extra monthly mini-sode, our additional patrons-only monthly podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies. We're doing something with rabbits this month. I'm so excited. Leslie... (laughs) Texted me today about it, and she was so I like really excited. <laughs> it's so cute. There's bunnies and murder. It's gonna be great. I love it. Mm-hmm. You will also get access to our live campfire story green room, which is like a really fun Zoom with us before we start. Mm-hmm. Sometimes John's here. There's always cocktails. It's fun. It's a fun mess. We love it. It's like a reality <laughs> show. It feels like. <laughs> it is. It is kind of like a reality show. Sometimes we take a quiz. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good time. You'll also get discounts in our merch store and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all that seems overwhelming, then you can just share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed. Maybe take a cute pic in your We Would Be Dead merch and post it. Or tell a friend or all of your friends and then also their friends. Okay. Yeah. Then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. I love gatherings. I know. Me too. And soon we can have them again. Okay. Both of us had our safe date happen, right? We did, yeah. Mine was on the 9th. Yeah. Mine was before that. That's right, because you were even before me. Mm -hmm. So we can hug vaccinated people now, you guys. That's exciting. We're coming for you. Yeah. (laughs) Watch out. Yeah, man. (laughs) You just have to be vaccinated and then it's hug city. (laughs) And there will be more of our about our live show at Tyndall Road Brewery in Bordentown in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. I know that we just kind of teased that major news, but I couldn't keep it in any longer. Yeah, I understand. We just have to start talking about it. Um, And I think that is all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add? Mm -hmm. Well, let's see. So that happened. We talked about that one. Merch oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> so we updated our merch store, and we now have cool new hoodies. We have them in green and in maroon. They're pretty. And then we also have a new hat. People ask for hats, and yeah. we have provided hats. Buy yeah. some hats. Buy some hats. <laughs> They're really nice. They're comfortable. I want one. I, I tried wait. one on. Maybe, maybe you guys will purchase the one that I wore in the photo. <gasps> Maybe I'll have one of Leslie's hairs in it. I cleaned it. And you could just frame it. (laughs) (laughs) I actually sprayed it with my hand sanitizer. Oh, my God. 
It's all good. Leslie's very clean. You're fine. Did you like wear it to the gym? Maybe there's Leslie sweat in it. Ooh. <laughs> Would you guys pay more if I sweat in the hat? <laughs> we can both do it. Yeah. Let Highest us know. bidder. What do you yeah. want? <laughs> anyway, that got gross. <laughs> if that's all you have, that's all. Great, great, great. Well, then, on with the show. So we both chose our favorite, like some of our favorite campfire stories to flesh out this week. Leslie, what will you be telling us about? I will be telling us about the <laughs> trunk murders of New Orleans. Ooh. I thought they were New Orleans too? Yeah. My brain thought they were Chicago. See, I don't retain anything. <laughs> <sighs> Maybe nobody else did either, so it's yeah. news. No, it was, I think because it was the 19, it was like the late 1920s, we both just are picturing yep. like Chicago vibe. That sounds right. Like the musical, not even just. Mm-hmm. No, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. So, and I will be talking about the Westfield Watcher House, a case that actually some of you guys have requested, but I had already done for a very small audience with very bad tech. So <laughs> this was like in the beginning when we cut out a lot. Yeah. And, um, so probably like. 15 to 20 of you guys have heard these stories before, but we have expanded them mm-hmm. and there's new information and we're going to do a fun little in-between stories yeah. game. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> stay tuned for that. We didn't talk about who's going first. Do you want to go first? Oh. Do you want me to go um, first? I'll go first. Go first. I'm, yeah. I'm excited. Okay. You've talked about how the story has evolved, so it I has. can't wait. So when I first did this story, again, this was also one of those like techie issues because we were outside. Yeah, so we cut out the so wind. much. <laughs> The yeah. wind is a thing. Well, we weren't, even, stuff. we weren't even in the same location at that point. I was outside and you were at your respective home. Oh, is that that? Yeah. Night? Okay. Mm-hmm. We were on like right. Switcher Studio. We did like a bunch of different oh, stuff. Oh, wild. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this story started off as like a page worth of information. And since then, I've gotten much better at writing <laughs> and researching. Yes. And so practice I'm like, makes progress. Oh, there's a lot more. Um, and there's several different ways the story is told, but I'll, I'll walk you guys through that. Get us there. Yeah. Hold our hand. So before I go into the trunk murders of New Orleans that happened in 1927, I first have to take us back to the 1800s. Oh, we were just there. We were, yes. Yeah, Is so, Gentleman Kitty there? No, not not here. Not here. He did not make it down this way. Damn it, Leslie. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, fine. All right, so. New Orleans has many ghost stories, but there is one that pertains to my story today. Back in the mid-1800s, Mr. and Mrs. Mueller immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. Mr. Mueller was a butcher by trade and established a successful sausage factory at 725 Ursuline Avenue, New Orleans. The sausages! I remember. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) The factory and storefront were on the first floor while the living quarters were on the second. Got it. The neighborhood loved their shop and the couple equally. Since their store was growing in popularity, Mrs. Mueller was finding it hard to keep up with both home and workplace duties, so Mr. Mueller hired a young woman to assist Mrs. Mueller with the day-to-day workload. Mm. This young woman happened to be very attractive. Ugh, don't hire like a hot nanny or a hot maid. It's not going to go well. And much less burdened by all the work that had been piling up. (sighs) Mr. Mueller found her to be much more free-spirited as well as much younger and prettier than his wife, who seemed to have aged quicker because of the stress of all the work. Oh my god, I hate him. Mm Mm-hmm. Ugh. So obviously, Mr. Mueller just couldn't resist himself, and the two began to have an affair. (sighs) Mrs. Mueller was no dummy and caught on fairly quickly. 
Divorce for them was not an option, but firing the young woman would suffice for Mrs. Mueller. However, Mr. Mueller just didn't want to get rid of his mistress, obviously. (gasps) I double hate him. Yeah, so while divorcing his wife or ending the affair was out of the question, killing her is the next best thing, right? Yeah, you got to find a solution. Yeah. So one evening while closing up the shop, he strangled Mrs. Mueller. Oh. He used his tools to cut her up and put her body parts through the sausage grinder. Ah! And not to be wasteful, he packed her meat and sold her as a regular sausage to his customers. No! It was probably like a special that week. We Ooh. have so many Sweeney Todd connections in the past few yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neighbors grew concerned and then suspicious of the disappearance of Mrs. Mueller, obviously. Mr. Mueller's behavior was also concerning. Neighbors would see him wandering at night, wringing his hands and looking as though he was hiding from someone, but no one was there. No one the neighbors could see anyways. (coughs) You see, a day or two after he killed his wife, Mrs. Mueller appeared as a ghost to haunt him. Sausage ghost. She was pissed. (laughs) I would be too. Several days later, one of Mr. Mueller's customer was unsettled to find a gold ring in the sausage and called <gasps> the damn cops. <gasps> the police went straight to Mr. Mueller's sausage factory <laughs> and oh, no. found him hiding in a corner, screaming and crying in terror. <laughs> he had gone completely mad at this point. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> There are several endings to this story. One is that he was so mad the police and neighbors almost felt sorry for him, and he spent the rest of his days hiding from the ghost of his wife. I mean— that's one. I think the thing I would like to be shaped like the least is a sausage. Yeah, I (laughs) don't—yeah. I mean, I don't know that she's, like, an actual— Sausage. I didn't even think her ghost came back sausage-shaped, but now I can't get it out of my head. Now it's a giant sausage link, like, "Mm, fuck you. (laughs) Just vague, almost like meat wad, just like, (laughs) face on a sausage. Okay. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking of being offended to be turned into a sausage because it's unflattering. (laughs) If I think something I put on is unflattering, I frequently say I look like a sausage. Oh, so... But now, but you I like might, yours so yeah. much better. <laughs> An actual sausage. Another version is that <laughs> not that version, not that one. Okay. Another version is that he was sent to solitary confinement, where he was haunted by his wife until he could not bear it anymore and killed himself. Ugh. Mrs. Mueller's ghost still haunts the buildings where the sausage factory was. This building has had many new occupants, but all have said that they have seen the sausage ghost, and few have even spoke of her desire for murder. <laughs> I love the sausage ghost, yeah. that title so much. Yeah. That when you, every time you bring the story up, I'm like, the sausage ghost. <laughs> it's not even the main part of the story, but no. I love it. It's not okay. even the main, so it's really funny, because it's not even really the main part of this story at all. No. It's just that when you look, when you find the story, they always call it, the trunk murders and the sausage ghost. And at first I was like, okay, how does this intertwine? And I see where they got to it later on, but it really we we'll we'll see. It's a journey. It All right. could so that story could have a lot of influence on this one. Okay. Or not. We're not we're gonna see. Yeah. Okay. Play with me, folks. I'm here. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Come, come on the journey. With that, I now transport you to 1927, New Orleans. We are now in full-on Chicago attire in my brain. So this is where we got to Chicago, right? So we feel like we're in Chicago. We're not, but it feels like it. 
To recall your memory, Mr. and Mrs. Mueller lived at 725 Ursuline Avenue. This story takes place at 715 Ursuline Avenue okay. in New Orleans. So it's the same That's building. That's related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Henry Moidy, 29. Henry Moidy. Yeah. <laughs> and his wife, Teresa Moidy. She had a crowded. <laughs> <laughs> So they shared a crowded second floor apartment with his brother, Joseph Moidy, who was 33, and his wife, Leonoid Moidy, who was 28, who went by Lonnie. Do you remember that one? Lonnie yes. Moidy. Lonnie Moidy. <laughs> Better than Leonoid Moidy. Yeah. That's a lot. The couples had three children between them. I think. I can't get I can't get their their children straight. I don't know okay. if one of them had three children and then the I don't know. But they had kids. In there that kids house there. there were three children and they belonged to Some of the adults. Yeah. (laughs) Someone owned them. (laughs) (laughs) Teresa and Lonnie would grow very close as they had a lot to be frustrated about. Their husbands were not very stable providers. They couldn't keep a job. The jobs they did have did not bring in much money, and the money that they did get usually went to their drinking habit. When Henry did work, it was usually in a butcher shop. He also did, like, some painting work or something. I don't know. Sometimes Joseph would work with him as well, but again, having a job never seemed to last long for these two. Mm. Teresa and Lonnie would do seamstress work to help bring in money and pay the bills. They were very good at this, and they were getting a lot of like good clients, mm-hmm. like repetitive clients. So having to work and taking care of the kids while also cleaning up after their drunken husbands was beginning to take a toll on these two ladies. Lonnie was the first to break and began messing around on Joseph. One evening, he came home to find her with another man. Mm. She kicked him out, uh, so he took the kids and moved back home with his sister and parents in New Iberia, Louisiana. Sure. New Iberia. That's where they grew up, him and his brother, and then that's actually where they met Teresa and Lonnie and then moved to New Orleans. Yeah, moved to the big city. Mm -hmm. So Lonnie continued to live with Teresa and Henry for the time being. Henry started to worry with Lonnie uh, that Lonnie was getting into Teresa's head and that he was nervous Lonnie would be, like, a bad influence on Teresa and persuade her to start having an affair with another man, too. Because, like— Because that, that's how that happens. I want all my friends to have affairs, too. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. Happens in the movies. I guess so. <laughs> These thoughts only made Henry more intolerable for Teresa to live with. She was getting fed up with this constant accusations of having an affair, his drunkenness, his empty pockets, and his disrespect. Ooh. So, on October 26th, 1927, Teresa and Henry got into a huge fight. Henry accused her of having an affair with their landlord, Joseph Caruso. Ooh. Henry tells her he has seen them flirting and passing notes, and he knows about their friendly streetcar excursions. That's all in quotes. Passing notes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) While screaming back and forth at each other, Teresa tells Henry that she's leaving with Lonnie and the kids. Henry mocks her and asks where she's going to get the money to support them, and that's when Teresa whips out a $10 bill and says, I could make more money in an hour as a prostitute than you could in a week. Ooh! Burn! (laughs) Henry has nothing left to say at this, and he leaves. Well, no. (laughs) It's a sick burn. He doesn't think Teresa is really going to leave. She has said things like this before, and he's just going to, like, let her cool off while he hits the bars. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. So he heads back home a few hours later to find Teresa and Lonnie packing their trunks with clothes for themselves and the kids. Henry is now taking them a little bit more seriously. But being pretty drunk, he just decides to leave and heads back to the bar, this time thinking of ways to kill himself and the children. Ew! It gets dark, yeah. But 
At some point on his walk, his mindset like begins to change. Something compelled him to think about Teresa and Joseph Caruso happily together after his death. Joey Caruso. Yeah. This pisses him off, and he decides instead to kill her. Drunkenly, he stumbles into a shop where he buys a cane knife to use as his murder weapon. A cane knife? Oh, we discussed this when we did this last time. Do you oh, remember what a yeah. cane knife is? It's, it was the knife in a cane, or is it a kind of knife? It's a kind of knife. That's okay. right. Okay, yeah. It's like, <laughs> I think it's, um, because some people have said in the story that he, like, killed her with a machete Ooh, or something. So, it's, so a, it's a knife. I think it's one of those, I think it's like a smaller. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. I looked it up last time, too, I think. I always wonder about this. I think thing. I remember my friend oh, Dan telling me. Oh, it's scary looking. It's a big knife with like a little hook on the end. Yes, it's the hook. Because I couldn't remember if it was the handle had the hook. Or- yeah, it's characterized by a hardwood handle. It's similar to a machete. machete. Okay, that's why It's used as prevalent in harvesting sugar cane in dominant cane-growing countries such as Peru, Brazil, Colombia, Australia, South Africa, Ecuador, Cuba, Jamaica, the Philippines, and parts of the United States, especially Louisiana and Florida. There we go. So they use it to cut down giant stalks of sugar cane. It's a big-ass weapon. Yeah. We'll put it in the photo suite. Cool. All right. So meanwhile, Teresa and Lonnie are packing away. As they finish, they decide it's getting late, so they will just leave in the morning. I'm like, get the fuck out of there. Why are you waiting? Leave. (sighs) So they put the kids to bed and then head to their rooms to get some rest before their big move. Mm. Henry arrives home. He enters his bedroom where Teresa is fast asleep. He stands over her body and just starts staring at her and his knife. Moments later, he begins swinging manically. He recalls later to investigators that Teresa did not move or make a peep the whole time. After he is sure she is dead, he runs into Lonnie's room and strikes her dead before she can even get out of bed. He then proceeds to cut their bodies into pieces, empties and packs the trunks, and places all their body parts into the trunks, and then places the trunks into the closet. Then he goes into hiding. Yeah. So this is where part of the story is like a little confusing because— I don't know if any of the kids were still there or if Joseph had actually taken them. So I don't know if they were going to try to go pick up the kids or if these women were just going to go off. But there's, I'll explain another small version in a second. So now before we get to the next day, I'm going to give you an alternate version of events. So this true crime has been told in wildly different ways, which is probably why on the more notable pages, they leave out these like some of these specifics. Okay, so in another version... Henry is not the only one who suspects Teresa is having an affair with Joseph Caruso. Oh. So he's still part of this, right? All right. The neighbors make mention of it, too. A few days before the murder, Henry tells Nettie. So Nettie is their housekeeper. Okay. She's going to be the one that finds. She opens the door the next morning. Oh, no. Yeah. So a few days before the murder, Henry tells Nettie, their housekeeper, that he should just kill the ladies. He's just like, I'm just going to kill them. And Nettie's like, that's fine. And then on October 26th, so the day that he did actually kill them, Henry and Teresa do have a fight, but it's actually about how neglectful Teresa is as a mother. Hmm. Teresa wanted Henry to stay home with the kids so that she and Lonnie could go out. Oh. But he was like, no, I don't want to. Like, this house is filthy, blah, blah, blah. It like, sucks. Yeah. The two end up leaving, and upon coming home, they they are drunk and hungry, so Henry ends up taking them out and the kids to dinner. Nettie sees them in the hallway and sees that they're, like, pretty happy at this point and fine, so she's just like, okay, they were just, like, having a fight. He's always drunk, like, he's just saying oh, People shit. are always saying they're going to murder their wives. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Though she does overhear a neighbor say something to Teresa about Joseph Caruso and that 
there are rumors of them running away together. So this is all happening like while Henry is like there so he can hear that. Hmm. Henry then tells Nettie in the hall not to worry if she hears the kids crying in the morning. Oh, no. After dinner, they come home, and Henry is starting to get really frustrated. The two women and children go to bed, and Henry is left to contemplate whether he should kill them or not. After a while, the urge to kill overcomes him, and then the story is the same from there. So there's, like, some weird back and forth with that. So in one story, it's like Henry and Joseph are just kind of jerk husbands Mm -hmm. that kind of led their wives to kind of be a certain way. But then Mm -hmm. the other one is that they're just all kind of messed up and the women are all like constantly cheating on their husbands too. Cause there was like one story that put like devoted husband, which I doubt that that's true, but (laughs) no, they're saying that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the next day on October 27th, their housekeeper, Nettie Compass was scheduled to work. Poor, poor Nettie. Oh, Nettie. Upon entering the apartment of 715 Ursuline, Nettie would be greeted with the most horrific scene and way more cleaning than she probably gets paid for. Oh, no. She began to scream for help right away. Two insurance men happened to be nearby and came running to see what all the fuss was about. When they saw inside the apartment, they told Nettie that they would run straight to the police station. On their way to get the police, a man named George William Healy stopped the men to ask what was going on. The two men quickly explained and then were, like, off to the station— George William Healy, who happened to be a local reporter, headed to the crime scene. Hmm. How lucky for him. Yes. Healy would later go on to write a memoir, and in it he describes what he saw that day. So, Mm. quote, We found red stains on the floor and saw a large trunk in the bedroom partially opened. When I pulled up the trunk lid, a woman's body, arms, and legs severed from the torso were exposed. Yikes. Healy ran to the nearest phone to call his friend, Gwen, a second reporter, to tell her of the scene and to get her ass down there. Oh, my God. (laughs) So weird. He then told Nettie that the police would be there soon, but she should probably also call the coroner now, too. So Healy writes about this moment when the uh, Orleans Parish Coroner, Dr. George Rowling, and Haley's reporter friend, Gwen, arrive on the scene. So she, meaning Gwen, charged into the apartment and cited several objects on the bed. Look, said Gwen, holding up these objects. Lady fingers. <laughs> like the cookies? Yes. Oh, good. Four fingers had been cut from a woman's hand. After placing the fingers back on the bed, Gwen moved to a second bedroom, found a second trunk, and opened it, and it contained a second woman's body. Lady fingers. Yeah. And quote. So the police finally arrived and took in the scene. I'm going to mention here, too, um, in just two places did I see this name Healy. And in one of them, Healy was the main investigator. Okay. And then in another story, Healy is this, like, reporter. And when I looked up this George William Healy's name, he is a reporter from this time period for, like, this paper. Okay. And he would have, like, I believe he would have written for it. I couldn't find so this actual So we're going to go with memoir. he's the reporter. Yeah. That but I sense. also don't know if there is a Healy that just happened to be the superintendent or investigator, like, at this scene, too. We're, we're just going to go with Yeah. going to go with you on it. Yeah. Just, just so you know, because if you if you find this story somewhere, there'll be a couple different ways. Yeah. So I tried to correct this, but in order to get a a good full story here, yep. <laughs> that's where I went with it. Yep, I feel <laughs> right. you. So when the police finally arrived, they took in the scene. There were two small traveling trunks, 
packed with the expertly butchered corpses of two young women, blood-soaked mattresses where the women had lain, severed fingers on the floor, a bathroom covered in blood, and women's clothes, children's clothes, and toiletries thrown all over the place, mixed in with all the blood and guts from the women. Yuck. Laying in a pool of blood was a manuscript handwritten by Lonnie. It seemed as though she had been writing her autobiography. (laughs) I was just going to say, was she writing her memoirs? She was. Yes, as a cautionary tale to younger girls. Lonnie! So, quote, this is a piece from her memoir. (laughs) This is so dramatic. Now to you readers, young girls especially, please think ahead of you and do not make the mistakes I've made because it does not always turn out the right way. You can still be disappointed. Guess it was only my luck to be happy like this, so I warn others not to take the same risk. Yeah, real happy. She's doing great. I know. So she includes an ominous piece of advice from her father, too. Quote, be careful, for marriage is a life sentence. End quote. Right? Cryptic. Mm. Next to the manuscript was a rejection slipped from her submission to a popular confession magazine. I mean, it wasn't great, so... (laughs) So Dr. George Rowling, the coroner, determined that the killer had first bludgeoned the women with a lead billy with a lead billy club before decapitating them with the machete. Oh, so or, that's like a policeman's club, right? A billy club yeah. is like a little mm-hmm. little stick, and then amputating their arms and legs. Ugh. Why? Ugh, they weren't hidden well. No, the police quickly realized Henry and Joseph Moiti were missing. Aware that Henry had previously worked as a butcher and the fact that it's always the husband, they highly suspected him of the crime. Yeah. The coroner agreed that the body parts were too nicely cut up to not be done by someone with some experience. So this is a little bit different than our Jack the Ripper case, mm-hmm. right? In a Times Picayune article, parish coroner Dr. George Rowling noted the killer's skill with a knife at trial, saying, quote, the killer who decapitated Mrs. Henry Moity knew enough not to try to cut through the bone, but to cut through the joint. <gasps> oh, okay. So, yeah, they really did know what mm-hmm. they were doing. The appearance of the head of the wife of the defendant indicated that it had been skillfully removed. End quote. Joseph Moity turned himself in right away, like when he found out that anything was happening. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it like me. I was like, but was he there? He explained to the police that he was no longer living there after walking in on his wife cheating on him. And the neighbors corroborated. Oh, I hate saying that word. His story. And after saying, after some more questioning, they let him go. They were like, you clearly didn't do this. He did help them locate his brother, though. It was rumored that he had fled to the Camp Street boarding house where he was staying overnight till he could board one of the steamer boats departing the next day. So the police put out a missing persons report on the streets and radioed to the boats that were departing. They described Henry as having dark, bushy hair, very dark brown eyes, and a tattoo mark on arm, flower with lady face, also nude woman. (laughs) Not lady fingers, though. Not lady fingers. It should have been lady fingers. Two days later, on Saturday, October 29th, crewmen of the freighter Gem reported Henry Moiti to the La Fourche Parish Sheriff. Henry had begged his way onto the ship using a false name, but the crew recognized his tattoo from the newspaper stories about the crimes. Henry confessed right away. He detailed his motives for killing, but also made it clear that he was extremely drunk during the whole thing. I'm so sorry. I was very drunk. I thought my wife was a steer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He 
believed his wife was having an affair with Joseph Caruso, and he was pushed off the edge when he believed she was going to leave him for the children for Caruso. He killed Lonnie because it was all her fault for being such a negative influence on his wife. Okay. So again, that's where like, I don't know if some of the story is like, maybe she was having a full on affair. Yeah. Maybe she was going to leave. You know, Not that killing is anything, right. but there also could have been superstitious or supernatural Making happening. the crazy husband kill his wife and dismember her again. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. There's a wife, wife dismembering demon there. Sausage ghost. Sausage ghost. November 2nd, 1927. <laughs> I'm a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sausage. Kill your wife. Oh, no. <laughs> I hate cheaters. Oh, no. <laughs> the infidelity sausage is coming for you. Yeah. You guys better beware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> November 2nd, 1927, from behind the bars awaiting trial, he is reported, well, Henry, is Mm -hmm. reported by the Times-Picayune to have threatened Caruso. This is also why he's connected to the sausage ghost. (gasps) Oh. Okay. Quote, if I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces. Not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces, my God. (laughs) I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. Not big pieces like my wife. Little pieces. Oh, my God. (laughs) Don't. That's not a good look. You didn't. Don't say that. Yeah. So that's where people connect them. They're like, the sausage ghost must have gotten to him. I'm a sausage. Kill your wife. (laughs) She's treating on you. (laughs) I would like a picture of that, too. Sausage ghost. So this statement led many to believe that Henry could have been a victim of the sausage ghost himself. Maybe his claims of his wife being unfaithful was merely the ghost of Mrs. Mueller haunting his thoughts and making him see things that really weren't happening. Maybe. Or pushing him to the edge and being like, she is cheating. (laughs) You should kill her. (laughs) I need to not be the only sausage. (laughs) I need sausage friends. (laughs) Sausage fingers for life. (laughs) That's their gang, sausage fingers. If I look like this, she has to too. I like that thought the best. <laughs> All right. This, so Nettie, poor Nettie. Oh, God. Nettie. That's right. She's still there crying. Yeah. Totally damaged. <laughs> I hope they put like a blanket around her. <laughs> <laughs> so Nettie took the stand and told prosecutors that the afternoon before the murders, Henry told her that he should, quote, take a pistol and shoot both these bastards. Oh, no. She also mentioned seeing them later. Um, Later that evening, in good spirits, uh, like they were going out somewhere, but that he did whisper to her not to be scared if she and her family heard the kids crying in the early morning. Oh, no. So weird, which is why I included the other version of events, because this was on trial. That checks out. Yeah, so maybe they did go out to dinner that night. Maybe there was something Mm -hmm. going on, and maybe maybe something was said that made him think that she was going to leave him and go with this Caruso person. So— The two murders were tried separately by different judges. Henry was found guilty in both cases and sentenced to two concurrent terms of life in prison. Henry began his sentence at Louisiana State Penitentiary on July 6, 1928. They must have liked him, though. Oh. Because in 1934, he was made a trustee of the prison, which I think means that he was given responsibilities for, like, special assignments that would let him move around the prison and sometimes, like, leave the prison to run errands without being, like, heavily guarded and sometimes not guarded at all. Mm -hmm. Like, they would just let him go places. So in the summer of 19... 
1844, on a routine trip to the post office, Henry was able to call a taxi to take him to Hammond, Louisiana. From there, he caught the Illinois Central Panama Limited en route to Chicago. So oh, Chicago! There we go! Now we're in Chicago. <laughs> George Provosti, then superintendent of the prison camps in Louisiana, seemed unconcerned. He predicted Henry would soon return on his own accord. Yeah, okay. Since he had served 16 years of a sentence and had a chance of being pardoned due to temporary insanity due to his consumption of alcohol mm. at the time of the killings. Two years later, in 1946, Henry was stopped for suspicious behavior by police in St. Louis, Missouri. When he admitted his identity, he was returned to prison in Louisiana. Despite this two-year holiday... <laughs> The Louisiana Pardon Board recommended his release in 1947. So they were just like, you left, but now you can go. You murdered two women and then escaped from prison. But we don't care. You can go. Yeah. Great. Good job, Louisiana. On March 26, 1948, Governor Jimmy Davis signed the pardon. 21 years after killing his wife and sister-in-law, Henry Moiti was free. Oh, my God. His early release turned out to be a terrible mistake that nearly cost another young woman's life. Shock surprise. After getting out of prison, Henry moved to California in hopes of restarting. At a Los Angeles hotel in 1956, Henry shot his girlfriend, Alberta Orange. (laughs) (laughs) What a name! I know. He shot her in the chest, puncturing her lung. He was sentenced to five years at Folsom Prison for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Only five years. So, again, he would have only had to serve five years, and that's it. Yep. Henry, but, okay, Henry died of a stroke in 1957 while serving his term in Folsom. Bye. Yeah. Isn't that so frustrating? Yeah. The sausage ghost followed him. I know. Kill your girlfriend. Kill her. I'm a sausage. (laughs) (laughs) I need friends. (laughs) Make her a sausage. I can't be the only one. (laughs) I'm banking on sausage ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, sausage goes for the win. I know who I'm cheersing tonight. <laughs> Seriously, and forever, Sausage Ghost is our new mascot. Yeah. That was a good one. Thank you. You're welcome. So <laughs> before before we tell I do mine, um, we <laughs> we talked about doing like a top ten best places to like hide a body. Yeah. But Leslie did like a really good job and and like tried. And I decided I was gonna wing it and think of the strangest places. Yeah. So this is going to be a fun hodgepodge. Well, mine aren't, like, great either. But I don't have any written down. Yeah. We're going to see what comes out of my brain. Okay. And maybe you'll, like, I just like was it. afraid I was going to be, like, your backyard <laughs> if I didn't come up with something. I'm going to say, like, gun to my head, what okay. comes out first. <laughs> all right. Kick Wall us off, start. research. Yeah, all right. So hide them in another grave. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, under the counter at a mall footlocker. Oh. They'd, you'd find them so fast. Not fast, necessarily. Under at the a counter? mall footlocker? Yeah, the customers are not going behind the counter. Okay, so like you'd have to be the worker. Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. At the bottom of the ocean, but like the real bottom of the ocean. Like, I think scuba divers can dive like 300 like, So you mean like the below. deep, deep so middle like, of the ocean? Yeah, it'd have to be like... You have to find, like, a ravine or that's something. That's actually a really good one. Bodies that are in water are really, that's tough. A lot of yeah. times they, they never find them. Yeah. They so. tell you to, like, wrap it in wire, though, so that, um, like, and weight it down so it obviously goes all the way down. But this way, if it's wrapped around in wire, 
then the animals can like nibble at it a little bit. You could feed them like a <laughs> like a crab trap. Like, yeah, what you- it'll be it'll, yeah, just like a little a little food for them. <laughs> oh, that's ter- <laughs> like a little feeder for the, for the fish. Okay, yeah. In the overhead compartment of a private plane, that would stink. You smell it. You're the pilot. Nobody else is on it. Gotta go. Okay. I told you. I this is yeah. whatever comes out of All my right. mouth. All right. <laughs> Feed it to the pigs. That's it, a good one. It takes 15 to 20 pigs to eat a body. But they d- eat all of it, bones and all. Yeah. So 15 to 20 pigs per body that you have. Yeah. Yeah. But they will honestly be gone. Yes. They That's love very people. effective. They love <laughs> eating people. They are sausages. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge of the sausages. Oh no, I have to think again. Um, hmm. In, hmm, in the equipment room, in a sports place, it smells anyway. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, they'll hide the smell for a little while. Yep. Okay. Put it in a locker. If you see some flies, like nobody's concerned. Exactly. It's gross there. Okay. Okay. A volcano. Yeah, man. Drop that shit right into a volcano. Mm-hmm. Or throw it out of a plane. Wherever it lands. You don't know. You don't even know. You can't be tracked. Okay. Throw it in space. <laughs> Just throw it so hard it hits space. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're really rich, you could probably pay to go to space and, like, dump your bodies up there. Oh, man. I never thought. Maybe there's, like, just bodies yeah. orbiting around. Yeah, just really rich serial killers. I'm going to write that story. <laughs> The richest serial killer ever. Yeah. Just orbiting bodies. There's like hundreds of them. <laughs> That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Also, I saw Event Horizon when I was too young, and the vacuum of space is awful. It's so scary. <laughs> Actually, that doesn't happen to you in the vacuum of space, but no. still. If it did, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, light them on fire and put them in an actual vacuum. Ooh. Just vacuum them up. Okay. In the canister. Yeah. Never know. Yeah. Light them on fire. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, there you have it, you guys. I think that's five. Did you do five? Yep. I think I did five. Yep. I, I blacked out. I don't know what I said. Yeah, those are, <laughs> yeah. So you have some some thoughts to. There there are bodies orbiting from a serial killer. Now I'm convinced. There has to be. Yeah, there are. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer. If I thought it, it has to be out there. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Put, or like. Another scary place would be like an abandoned treehouse in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. So scary. You'd be the scariest yeah. body. Yeah, I guess I was going the route of nobody finding you. You're doing a really good job. I was just, just, um, just better just, places. Just so going. We got on this because we were like, where is a better place to hide a body than a trunk <laughs> in your closet? <laughs> well, also, originally I paired this with Elmer McCurdy, which is a great story that I will eventually write out for in full which is about a body popping up in a bunch oh, yeah, of weird yeah. places. And it's the old, one of the only stories I wrote that isn't saved in the same location. And so I have to rewrite it. Mm. And I will, because it's a really great story, but I was just, my brain is tapioca after Jack the Ripper, and I needed a little break. So You don't need to explain yourself, Holly. I love when you say that. It makes me feel so much better. <laughs> Thank you, Leslie. People aren't over here just like, well, bye. <laughs> you could also put your body in a haunted cord maze. Ooh. I could do this all day now. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, you can make it part, yeah, part of the haunted Part of the house. corn maze. Yeah. It's outside. They won't smell. Yeah. And it's like, they're always farms anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And if you bury a body, yes, you need to bury it at least eight to ten feet underground. Mm-hmm. Pour bleach over at least like a half a bottle of mm-hmm. bleach, okay. right? And then you cover the body, and then about five feet from the ground is when you bury like a dead animal or something else. That's like the other case you were going to do yeah. today. So the next time we do stuff, you can do the woman that had animal bones on top of her, and I'll do Elmer McCurdy. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that was a good story. Yeah. And then and then cover it up, but because they'll. The dogs will find the animals. Right. But and they've already the dig so far Good that one. they're just like, we're not going to dig any further. And even if they do dig another foot, it's another five feet down below that. True story. That's smart. Yeah. So work out your arms. Or put them in a toboggan, push them down a mountain. It's cold. Yeah. You, again, if you don't know, you can't be connected. That's true. Yeah. And depending on how you kill them, maybe the people will think that they died from getting from going down a mountain in a toboggan. Yes. See? Something to it. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> now that we've given you guys priceless ideas to commit horrible crimes, yeah. I will tell you all. <laughs> don't, don't kill people. Don't kill people. <laughs> but if you do, pigs are the way to go. <laughs> That's the tag yeah. this week. Someone's going to hold on to that one. <laughs> We're going to get quoted on that. It's... <laughs> Oh, man. This was a terrible idea. <laughs> or was it a great idea? It was wonderful. <laughs> What's your story? My story is The Watcher House. Mm-hmm. This is a New Jersey story. Yes. I covered this on our Weird New Jersey Campfire Story Night. So, it was a warm evening in June of 2014 in the well-manicured town of Westfield, New Jersey. The homes on Boulevard. Yes, just Boulevard. I've looked at so many maps. It's nothing Boulevard. It's not Boulevard Boulevard. It's just straight up Boulevard. Mm -hmm. All right. The homes on Boulevard are large and stately, most of them having been in place for nearly 100 years. 657 Boulevard was no exception to this rule. The comfortable family home was built in 1905, and since its erection had only housed families and kept them— I know I said erection, Leslie. (laughs) I tried to go by it so fast. I tried not to giggle. Since then, it had only housed families, and everyone who lived there stayed there for quite a long time. So this was like a long-time family home. So it wasn't just a house. It was a home and had seen many holiday parties, cramped with family members, watched more than a few children take their first steps, celebrated anniversaries, graduations, housed first loves, stolen moments, fleeting arguments, late-night conversations, and a great many meals at a large dining room table atop a polished parquet floor. It is the American dream encapsulated. But on this warm June night, one family would watch their brand new turn-of-the-century dream begin to melt away, revealing a tense two-story nightmare that vibrated with an electrical current of paranoia and flicked open its thousands of hidden eyes to watch their every move from the smallest of shadows. This is the story of The Watcher. And while all of us may think that at this point it takes an awful lot to scare us, we're pretty tough, The Watcher will prove that when done properly, the scare of a lifetime can come from black ink on white paper and nothing more. Minimalist. I like it. Mm -hmm. Back in the spring of 2014, 41-year-old Derek Broaddus and his 40-year-old wife, Maria Broaddus, had just purchased 657 Boulevard, a stunning six-bedroom, 3.5-bath, 3,920-square-foot home. It's a big home. In the posh town of Westfield, New Jersey, for a cool $1.3 million. (laughs) 
What's that life like? No idea. I hope we know at some point. When I grow up, (laughs) Maria had grown up on the picturesque tree-lined streets of Westfield and had always dreamed of moving back there one day with a family of her own. And so when the pair were able to purchase a house on Coveted Boulevard, they could barely wait to move in with their three children. And just to let you know, Westfield is no joke. In 2018, it was named the 99th richest city in America. Mm -hmm. Its coveted location is just 16 miles from downtown Manhattan, which makes it a perfect location for people who want to work high-powered jobs in New York City but return home to a charming suburb. Westfield is also ranked among the safest towns in the United States and has one of the highest median incomes. It has a charming downtown area with a main street that looks just like it coasted out of an idyllic 1950s sitcom, and this downtown is located within walking distance of many of the sprawling homes that are tucked into neat neighborhoods. Westfield is so charming that its library was founded in 1873 as a meeting place for the, quote, every Saturday book club. (laughs) And this little building evolved into a public library that gave the whole town access to literature even on the weekdays. Mm -hmm. Precious. So brash. So as you can imagine, the residents are very protective of their little town, its safety, its image, and who becomes a part of their community. So keep that in mind as we move forward. It's kind of like Cape May in the mm-hmm. fact that, like, your home has to look a certain way and you have to, like, follow the rules. Right. Three days prior to the lovely June evening in question, the Broadduses had picked up the keys to their new acquisition and immediately began some renovations. Like, the second they got the keys, they're like, all right, time to get in there and, and make shit different. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, also, this house is an historic gem. And painting and paneling over a 100-year-old exposed brick— should be a crime. Yes. It's terrible. But last I checked, there is no legal discourse for bad taste. And I get the need for a finished basement. I just would have kept the big, beautiful hearth and put in some hardwood floors. Yeah, absolutely. It's, like, gorgeous. And they painted painted bricks white, which makes me want to, like, kill people. I hate I it. Oh, no, the sausage ghost. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Derek Broaddus was in his new home alone that evening getting some painting done. You know, painting those bricks. It was almost 10 o'clock when he put his brushes away for the day and remembered that he had neglected to check the mail. Granted, they had only just begun the address-changing process, so there wasn't much mail for them, but there were a few official documents he was expecting to arrive, and so he figured he would go check the box all the same. Derek pulled out a couple small pieces of mail and went inside to examine them. Bill, bill, card, bill addressed to a previous owner, menu to a local pizza place. Wait, He cycled back and saw a small white envelope addressed simply to 657 Boulevard. No names, black ink on white paper. No return address had been listed. So Derek eagerly opened the strange envelope. We all like cool mail. That's exciting. Yeah. It was a typewritten letter that began, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. A welcome letter from a new neighbor? How completely charming. Derek felt confident in his choice to spend such a large sum of money on their new home, because it was a crazy amount of money. But then the letter went on. How did you end up here, it asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? Creepy. But okay, an eccentric neighbor isn't the worst thing you could have. Mm -hmm. The letter then went on. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday— I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. The fuck? (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. My grandfather watched this house in the 1920s, and my father watched it in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you there? I will find out. The letter then identified the Broadus's Honda minivan and acknowledged the workers renovating the home, saying, quote, I see that you have already flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Agreed! Come on! You painted over 100-year-old exposed brick. This guy's methods are creepy, but right now, I'm kind of on his side. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving on. The letter then dips into horror land with this little chestnut. Quote, You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. The letter then asks if there might be more on the way, before blowing everyone's mind by adding, quote, Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. And the writer uses the wrong two. He uses T-O-O. Get your life together, please. (laughs) Derek's skin went cold and his stomach dropped when he realized that he and his wife had stopped by the house a few days prior with their children. It was an exciting milestone showing the kids the new house, and the family even introduced themselves to the next-door neighbor, who welcomed them to the neighborhood cheerfully while the children ran through their brand-new backyard. Derek and Maria made small talk without a care in the world, and all the while, someone had been watching their children from a distance. I barely let my kids walk to the mailbox because of this exact possibility. Right. Ugh. But the letter isn't finished yet. Oh. Oh, no, it goes on. Quote, Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the main windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Signed, The Watcher. And the signature is in a cursive font, not an actual, like, pen. Okay. So we don't have handwriting. Okay. <gasps> what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> that just arrives in your mailbox? Right. Let the party begin? What does that mean? That is menacing. Yeah. That's not a fun party I want to go to. No. So Derek brought us immediately drops to the floor. I love this part. In case someone was still watching him. So he's like, out of sight. And then he crawled away from the house's many windows, only popping up to shut off all the lights and lock the doors. And I love this image of him like crawling around on the floor Mm because it's totally what I would have done. Once his floor fortress was secured, he called the damn cops. The local police send an officer out to 657 Boulevard immediately, and he proceeded to respond in the single most New Jersey way possible. The cop looks at the letter, looks at Derek, and then says, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Glorious. This is my favorite part of the story, and the New York Times printed that as a quote. Right. (laughs) The fuck is this? (laughs) The officer then asked Derek a few more questions, like, does he have any enemies, or does he have friends that like to uh, play pranks? Then he asks Derek to ask his wife the same questions, and then he takes a statement and says the police will check back in a couple of days. 
So Derek returns to his old house where his wife and children are there. It's like a smaller home, but it's still Mm -hmm. in Westfield, kind of on the edge. And they begin to pour over this letter. Who could it possibly have come from? A word on these letters, because of course there's going to be more than one. Mm -hmm. They have never been released to the public in full. So you can't read the whole letters anywhere. We only have passages and paragraphs and phrases to work from. So if a few of the bits seem weird and nebulous, it's because no one without legal rights to the case files knows where in each letter a particular piece precisely goes. Okay. So I've done my best to keep it as linear as possible, but it's pretty hard. Somewhere in the body of the first letter was the phrase, quote, I asked the woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Which... Sounds a lot like a person that was sacrificing a goat in the forest. Mm-hmm. Until you find out that the Broadduses had purchased 657 Boulevard from a couple named John and Andrea Woods. So that night, Derek and Maria fire off an email to the Woodses asking if they had ever heard from this watcher person or had any idea what this strange letter might be about. The Woodses responded pretty quickly and said that they had lived in the house for 23 years with absolutely no problems. But... Now that they thought about it, they did receive a strange letter just a few days before they moved out that was worded very similarly to the Broadduses and was also signed The Watcher, which is pretty fucking relevant. And that should have been the first thing you said. Right. (laughs) They're like, everything was fine. Oh, no, wait. We got one of those too. Wouldn't you be immediately freaked out if you heard like they got a similar letter? Wouldn't... I don't understand why they weren't freaked out when they got the letter. Well, what they did was they thought it was a prank and just threw it in the trash. Like, somebody's fucking with us. We're moving out. They had a younger son who's around, like, 21 at this time. So they're like, maybe it was one of his friends. Oh, Jeremy. I know. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) So they just threw it out and moved on with their lives. Obviously, the Broadduses were less than thrilled to hear about that and were not exactly pleased that they had been not warned about a potential crazed stalker. But there wasn't much that they could do at this point. This information was all then added to the police report, and everybody moved on. With a little extra digging, Derek and Maria discovered that before the Woodses, a family with the last name of Blake had lived in the home for 40 years. When asked if anything strange had ever happened at 657 Boulevard, they replied that it hadn't. No letters or forest spirits or anything of the kind. So these are people they still were able to get a hold of. They were like, no, it's fine. It's just our house. Mm -hmm. Then two uneventful weeks pass. After that, the Broadduses then receive another letter, and this time it has their last name on the envelope, not just an address, though it is spelled incorrectly. One can only assume the writer has just heard their name in passing and not seen it in writing. It also refers to all three of the Broaddus children in age order by nicknames that only their parents call them. And once again, it is signed, The Watcher. And the parts of the letter we know read, quote, Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. I am pleased to know your names, and now the names of your young blood you have brought me. Oh my God, call them young blood one more fucking time. It's, I hate it so much. You certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular, then, who the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch, saying, quote, Is she the artist of the family? Ew. Yep. It then continues, quote, 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood, God damn it, ruled the hallways of the house. Have you all found the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? 
I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the Watcher, and I have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. Now you are too, Braddus family. So again, it's spelled B-R-A-D-D-U-S, not Braddus. So he doesn't know them yeah. that well. <laughs> or he can't spell it all. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. <laughs> person is such an asshole. <laughs> I know. After this letter arrived, the Broadduses stopped bringing their children to the house. Yeah. Which, wouldn't we all? They're like, yeah. I saw your little child with an easel on the porch. I'm out. Nope. Yep. We're done. In fact, the Broadduses had began to rethink the decision to live there at all. Wouldn't we all? Yeah. Derek and Maria started to look for ways they might be able to get out of their purchase, but the renovations had already been made, the documents had been signed, and ownership has been officially turned over. Derek and Maria barely came to the house themselves at all at that point, and the children were living full-time with Maria's parents. Anytime the couple did spend any amount of time in the house, they were looking over their shoulders in abject terror the whole time. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, a third letter arrived, and this one said only, quote, Where have you gone? 657 Boulevard is missing you. Fuck that! No, thank you. Thankfully, during this time, the Westfield police had been very busy bees. They knew that since the letters indicated the writer could observe the house, it had to be a neighbor. Right. This section of Westfield, where 657 Boulevard is, features large, wide, tree-lined streets with all the houses have huge, grassy lawns. So it's not like you can even see five houses down the block because everyone has so much property. Everything is very spaced out. And I will put a Google Street View in the photo suite so you guys can see exactly what I'm talking about. But I've looked at every angle of the street and the house I've done everything short of driving to Westfield myself. And let's be honest, eventually I'm going to. But the point is that for anyone to constantly be able to observe this home, they would have to live very close by. The police traced the letter to their local North Jersey post office. So coming from the neighborhood was a very reasonable option. The first possible watcher the Broadduses actually thought they tracked down themselves. Maria was having coffee with a neighbor, which... They were very social for people who didn't actually live there full-time. I don't know how she was, like, friends with everybody immediately. And the neighbor told them that the Langfords, a family that lived just across from 657, um, had lived in the area since the 1960s, or in that house, sorry, like, right across the street the Langfords lived. When the watcher's father, the letter said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. So the Broadduses bring this information to the investigating officers, and they respond in the same perfect manner as they did when they initially found out about the case by telling the Broadduses that they had already considered Michael Langford and even brought him in for questioning after they saw the first letter. And then they say, this isn't CSI Westfield. 
<laughs> love Jersey. I just, I love them so much. These cops are great. Um, and they later told the Broadduses, um, the cops said, when the wife is dead, it's the husband. <laughs> he just threw that in. Like, this isn't CSI. Here's another phrase I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love them so much. Bunch I love dead. the Westfield Police Department. <laughs> Michael Langford, so the guy that we're suspecting right now, was the grown-up son of the Langford family, obviously. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia sometime before this, but was pretty highly functioning and kept his symptoms managed for the most part. And Michael lived in the house across the way with his mother and sister who cared for him full time. Now, he was known throughout the neighborhood as like kind of creepy, but harmless. Mm -hmm. Michael tended to wander around the neighborhood looking in windows. Not great. Right. But if he saw you like come home from the grocery store, he would immediately run over to help you with your bags. Neighbors said he was a bit socially challenged, but was always friendly and well-meaning. He just didn't really understand he was doing weird stuff. Right. One neighbor said that Michael would creep around his house every morning and then bring his newspaper to his front step. <laughs> okay. So, like, it seems really creepy that he's, like, creeping around your house, but then he's like, I brought you your paper. Right. <laughs> it's a little unsettling, but it is also a local man dealing with his mental illness and just trying to help, and it hardly seems like the boogeyman to me. Okay. I don't feel like he could string together these, like, eloquent, like, menacing letters. But I will say this. I don't feel like they're eloquent. I guess not totally. Like, even as you said, like, if you say, like, even just calling them young blood and then, like, repeating it, it's, like, kind of stupid. Yeah. They're, they're written, to me, it sounds like... A like a kid, like a kid, a teenager, or like young, tw- like a like a young. It's a young Jeremy. person. It's Jeremy. They did consider the Woods' son. He was oh, brought in for questioning, yeah. but quickly released. He was like, "I don't yeah. even know why I'm here." <laughs> anyway, I don't think that this this sad guy from across the okay. street is necessarily the guy that we're looking for. But and and I think it's a little bit unfair to point all the blame at him in the yeah. first place. He's just a guy that needs that is a little different and yeah. needs some help. But he has he's just been known to live there his whole life and be like very friendly. Yeah. So the police So he could just be if what if you read the letter in a nicer tone? Read them again in a really friendly tone. <laughs> Do you want me to go back and read it like a friendly read, girl? Read one of them like a friendly person. <laughs> okay. Because he even said at one point like the house misses you. Where are you? Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy, and I've been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time they will. I am pleased to know your names and the name of your young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. See? It's nice. Is it? <laughs> is it? Then he goes on to say, Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young buds play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It's far away from the rest of the house, and if you were upstairs, you'd never hear them scream. Yeah, that's a warning. Is it just nice? like, yeah, it's just like, yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> All right. This isn't CSI Westfield. Yeah. <laughs> um, the husband did it. Ayo. All right. So... The police didn't feel the need to investigate Michael, though. They were really familiar with him. They had been called on him before, probably, because he did weird stuff, but he was never really doing anything bad. But the Broadduses decided that this was definitely the guy that they were looking for, and so they launched their own full-out private investigation. Derek Broaddus would camp out in certain areas of his yard to see where someone might be able to overhear them from. 
He purchased cameras and a home security system. The Broadduses even hired a private investigator and, I don't know how they did this, looped in former FBI agent Patricia Kirby, who was the inspiration for the character of Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. Well, they got money. They do have money. <laughs> I mean, not much any longer after the house. It kind of, mm-hmm. we'll find out it, yeah. it kind of did them in financially. So that's right. The Broadduses were able to bring in the first woman to ever speak to serial killers on behalf of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. She is an, ex- an insightful and impressive woman and should get way more credit than she does. But anyway, so along with the, the Broadduses, Agent Kirby creates a profile for the Watcher because that's what she did. She learned how to profile criminals, saying that they were probably a literary-minded person who seemed to be well-read but not incredibly educated. So good. Yep. You're Clarice Starling. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> As the letters were riddles, but there you had typos and misspellings, and they were still cov- covered in flowery language. So like exactly what you said. They meant mm-hmm. to be smart, but they weren't executing it very well. Right. Mrs. Kirby also said, or Agent Kirby, I don't know if she's still an agent at this point. Patricia Kirby said the watcher would have to be a person with an intense distaste for the wealthy, probably because he or she said this, quote, the house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You're stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in it in the time when I roomed in its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard. When I ran from room to room, imagining the life with the rich occupants there, the house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old, and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. Now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Gross! What again, ha- if you say it friendly. And wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Still yeah. bad. This is still terrible. What happens next <laughs> is a long spiral into paranoia and is super crazy. Yeah. So the Broadduses tried to sue the Woodses to reclaim some of the money they paid for the house, stating that the Woodses should have informed them about the letter they received, and they tricked them into buying the house without this knowledge. And that went about as far as you think it would go. There are some laws that require a previous owner to disclose any crimes or deaths that may have occurred within the house, and if they think there are ghosts. Right. No shit. In some states, when you sell a house, you have to disclose ghosts. Mm Mm-hmm. I know New Jersey requires that you disclose deaths, but I'm not sure where we stand with ghosts. Right. But nowhere does it say that you have to disclose one weird letter you got. So they weren't legally obligated to tell them about that. Mm -hmm. Michael Langford was brought into questioning a second time, but the police still had no reason to believe it was him other than the Broaddus' insistence that it was. Sure, he had some Boo Radley vibes, but that isn't exactly enough for an arrest. Eventually, the Broadduses were told to stop harassing this poor man as they were new to the neighborhood and Michael had been there his whole life with zero incidents other than being creepily helpful. There are a lot of accounts that went to paint him as criminally insane. So if you read this story, there are a lot of people that want to be like, the neighbor with schizophrenia who wandered around and did horrible things to children. And there's just no, Mm -hmm. it has no legs to stand on. And this poor man is like, he's had a hard life since then, like, People won't leave him alone. The mm-hmm. town the town kind of protects him, but, like, anybody that reads this story wants to kind of hunt him down and see him. It's it, it's not right. great. So, yeah, if you read those things, they are wrong and mean. Okay. Derek and Maria began to have horrible nightmares. So now they're, they're pretty traumatized by this stuff. They went into counseling. They were depressed and paranoid. Derek even went on to price out a large German shepherd to try and protect the house. 
Eventually, the Broadduses just decided to put the house back on the market. They had lost so much. Their previous home had sold very quickly, so now all of them were living with Maria's family, while their large, beautiful home sat empty. Mm -hmm. They, however, made sure to disclose their issues and the letter from the watcher to any um, prospective buyers. So, you know, shock, surprise, the house is not selling. Right. For reference, the Broadduses had purchased the house before realtors had even had the time to place a for sale sign in the front lawn. Mm. These are very in-demand properties. Like, they do not stay on the market ever. So it's kind of, it's definitely because of what they're telling people that they didn't sell the house. Right. Oh, and just so you know, so I looked it up. In New Jersey, a seller must truthfully tell a buyer if their property comes with a phantom roommate. Mm. Only if asked, though. Oh, so you have to, okay, so you don't have to disclose a ghost, but Mm -hmm. if someone asks you if there are ghosts, you have to say yes or no. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Approaching their wits' end, the Broadduses even threatened to knock the house down. They wanted to bulldoze the whole home and then put two small rental properties up in its place. But as you can imagine, their neighborhood was horrified. Mm -hmm. The house at 657 Boulevard was gorgeous and historic, and neighbors had no desire to see two little rental property eyesores put up in its place. They would have stuck out insanely. And also, they're the kind of people that probably don't want renters. Right. This would completely destroy the neighborhood's aesthetic, and legally the neighbors won this. They they, they took it all the way to court, and the neighbors won the legal battle, and the Broadduses were forced to leave the house alone as it was. Because they went to court and said, it's going to devalue our neighborhood, it's going to ruin the whole aesthetic, it's it's a historic town, and the court sided with them. Hmm. Kate May would have sided with them. Yeah. 100%. But the investigation on the Watcher was still going strong. There were DNA tests conducted on the Watcher envelopes, which revealed that the liquor was a female— Okay. These made some speculate that Derek Broaddus had an angry mistress. <gasps> or Maria had an angry mistress. We don't know. It also made them look at the female members of the Langford family. These poor people. They would, like, not leave them alone. Yeah. Detectives stole discarded water bottles from the Langfords. Like, I think they followed some of them around and took it out of a wastebasket or, like, out of the recycling at the house. And they DNA tested those, but they weren't a match to any of the envelope lick. What about any of the other neighbors? They didn't do that? I guess not. After the rental property incident, the neighborhood completely turned on the Broadduses, claiming that they thought the Broadduses themselves wrote the letters in order to rid themselves of a house they couldn't afford. That's what I read um, a couple years ago. This is the most popular theory. And I hate to say it, but it does make a lot of sense. A lot of people think, and it is proven, that they did reach beyond their means financially to buy a house, which people do. That's not Mm -hmm. uncommon. And that... When they realized that they had gotten themselves in financial trouble, they wanted to create a problem that would help them escape their, like, purchase right. of the house, and they could just backpedal out of it. Right. My only thing, though, is that they went really far into, like, hiring a private—I mean, I guess it's not that crazy to hire in a private I, yeah. investigator, but thinking that they'd make their money back, but— Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to go with that theory, you— would do stuff to look convincing if, uh, if like, $1.3 million was on the line. Right. But then they they had all that money to start renovating, too. So. Which probably was, like, even more. Right. Put them in the hole. Yeah, because I remember reading once that it was not even the wife, because it felt like the wife was the one that wanted yes. to live there, mm-hmm. that it was the husband doing yeah. all of this. So the wife was, like, freaking out and, yeah. like. So I keep waiting for that to come out, but I know. <laughs> That's the most popular theory yet again, but like, which I'll get to briefly. 
yeah, there's no evidence really. You can't yeah. prove it. There's no and knowing she, more of the story yeah. now. It feels really hard that that's actually what happened. Well, you're going to turn around in a minute on okay. that too. So. Okay. Eventually, the Broadduses were able to get a loan to purchase yet another smaller house in Westfield, and they quietly moved in there. The children are whispered about and taunted at school, and Derek and Maria have an occasional hard time with the neighbors. Everyone talks about them behind their back. They really, like, the town turned on these people. But they are not without supporters. There are some people that are in their corner, too. After all, they were seemingly terrorized. If you look at Derek's Twitter account, which you can find, it's easy. It's kind of a minefield of watcher stuff and then also topical politics. Um, he's still talking about it, in case you were wondering. Derek and Maria were able to rent out the house at 657 briefly, but a copycat letter came to the renter. It was not in the usual watcher, usual watcher style. So after that, a bunch of copycat letters also came in. Obviously, just like we saw in Jack the Ripper, when something famous like that happens, everybody else wants to do it too. But they were pretty quickly dismissed. And this was an extremely tolerant renter, by the way. He got these letters and he was like, whatever. He was like totally fine with it. Look at the renter. I can't say I would have been that cool about it, but whatever. Finally, the Broadduses decided to drop the cost of the house drastically, and it sold on July 4th, 2019. But the Watcher was never found. A few theories as to the identity of the Watcher remain. One of them, of course, is that the Broadduses are guilty themselves, and most of the neighborhood holds on to this one. And the Broadduses haven't done themselves any favors. On Christmas Eve of 2018, a handful of houses on Boulevard received threatening letters in the style of the Watcher signed, quote, Friends of the Broadduses. The letters warned the neighbors against continuing to speak ill of the Broadduses, claiming harm might come to them if they did not. One of them mentions how they wish that they could still tar and feather people. Some of the letters, letters spoke about members of the community having undiagnosed mental illnesses that could become dangerous in the future. And later, Derek Broaddus admitted to writing these all himself in desperation. Mm. So he really didn't help his case by also writing some letters. Right. But then the fact that he would feel compelled to do that. Sure. Unless it was too obvious. And so now also the people who theorize that he did it and his wife was not aware think that he he was just scrambling to try and figure things out. He's like, well, I'll admit to this one and not, you know. I don't know. Or that his wife found out that he did it and so he had to admit to those at least. Yeah. The second and more interesting theory involves an elderly couple who lived in a house behind number 657 and who had lived there for 47 years. The husband was a man who had been seen frequently sitting in a lawn chair staring at number 657. One of the couple's children had also married a man who grew up in, of all places, 657 Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So this guy's stuff lines up in that he had been there a long time and he would have known what it was like in the house, I guess maybe for the kid or something. But they never really investigated this guy. Whoever the watcher may be, though, they are appeased. After the house sold and the Broadduses were out for good, they received one more letter, and it simply read, You are despised by the house, and the watcher won. The end. Hmm. Yeah, so there are, like, a lot of online theories. Again, this was Campfire Story Length, so I didn't go, like, nuts yeah. into details. You guys can read all the details online. I'll share the um, the cut article that I read that's really fantastic. Um, there are also people that talk about it being haunted, and they say that Maria Broaddus felt, like, apparition-y, like, feelings when she was in the house. She thought it was a ghost. And none of the theories, other than it being them, mm-hmm. really add add up and check every box. Right. 
Or, like you said, they didn't fully... I mean, maybe they did do a full investigation of the people behind the house. But because it's probably still ongoing, they probably can't release a lot of things. Yeah. Because they also don't want people like us Mm -hmm. (laughs) coming up with too many I know. And I I hesitate to try and point the finger of blame at the Broadduses because, I mean, if they're not guilty, they were horribly terrorized. And this is just worse. Right. So I don't want to really say that. It is the most popular one. Then there are people that simply think it was local teenagers playing a prank. There's some mm-hmm. evidence of that. Like they found kids at a party who were doing some stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. But again, none that checked out enough to be like, oh, we have, we can paper trail them. Right. And they DNA tested out of it too. All these like teens that mm-hmm. were talking about it at a party or something. So really, yeah, there's not a lot of concrete stuff to mention. But like the thought of receiving those letters in your new home. Mm-hmm. Is terrifying. I know. And I feel bad if it if it was the family. I feel terrible for the kids. Yeah. That's like, yeah. Fortunately, the kids, I don't think the kids knew about it for a while because they were kept out of the house. Mm-hmm. as like They were in the house for, I think, two weeks total. And then they were like, nope, as soon as the letters came in that said, like, we see your children. Mm-hmm. But again, if you want to be a cynic... You can look at it as, well, we are not safe enough to keep our children in the home. See, we have moved them out. We can't possibly stay right. here. And it's because you didn't tell us. And people, of course, argue that then the Broadduses knew that they were going to be in financial trouble before they moved. And so that letter to the Woodses, they had also sent. Right. Mm. But And we're just speculating that they would of have course. been in financial. Yeah, there's no, there's no like direct evidence of that. I mean, mm-hmm. they definitely suffered huge financial hits. And the thing that people are they also... did because of this. Yes. But the other thing that people makes people speculate wildly is that they quickly went from a $350,000 house to a $750,000 house to a $1.3 million house in the matter of like a small amount of years. So people are like, well, how did you financially, like how did you afford that? Are you just like working on credit that you don't have? But they had explanations for all of it, job promotions. Yeah. You know, like they were like, well, we, we made money. And yeah. Her, yeah. And her family, she used to live on that street, she said. No, she lived in Westfield, but not on, oh, okay. on Boulevard. She lived on that street. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, this case is, the story is very interesting. And I simply told the story. Yeah. And any and all branches in this tree that you can go into have no evidence at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a fun read. It's a fun rabbit hole. If you guys want to go down it, we can talk about it on the Facebook board. Like, Don't follow the rabbit. It's Don't, busy. God damn it, he's busy. <laughs> we went over that last week. But that's that's the Watcher. The Great. Watcher 1. Watcher 1. Ugh. Toast? Toast. Sausage ghost. Sausage ghost Toast and lady sausage fingers. Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> to the sausage ghost and lady fingers, they get their own. Yeah, and Teresa and Lonnie, and Teresa and Lonnie, or maybe not. I don't know. We don't know. I mean, if sausage right. ghost, I don't know. I, mean, I don't want to piss off sausage ghost. <laughs> sausage ghost is our mascot now. Yes, we love sausage ghost. <laughs> I'm gonna draw them up. I was, later. Th- I was all I was thinking of is like I want to draw the sausage ghost. <laughs> Everybody, draw your interpretation. Yes. I want to see what everyone imagines because I have a very clear. Don't tell me yours. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is now everyone has homework. Okay. Um, and I will toast, I don't know. It's so unclear because I want to say the Broadduses because they went through a lot. But then there's also the side of the story that they could have been behind all of it. Right. So I don't know that I think. I want to. No, I know. The Westfield Police. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Cheers, Westfield Police. Keep being you. Never change. <laughs> oh, and we have a new patron. We do. Oh, my cousin Nikki Mills. Cousin Nikki. Yes, everyone's cousin Nikki. Cheers, Nikki. And if we were the subject of a terrifying story people told around a campfire, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Don't kill people, but if you do, pigs are the way to go.